After his panel discussion on populism and COVID at the Better Discourse Conference in Milwaukee, we caught up with Jack Posobiec. Here's our conversation with him. So can I ask you something that uh, it wasn't really about the panel, but you got into it a little bit, and you have an area of expertise here that I don't think is exploited well enough in this community, which is your knowledge of China. Yes. Um, and one of the things I'm concerned about is I think a lot of people don't understand how intertwined the Chinese and American economies actually are. Like, average people don't understand that. And then when I look at what Trump is doing, for example, with TikTok and WeChat, and then I see the Chinese government's reaction with, you saw the closing of both embassies. They didn't close Wuhan, which would have been a better political move. They upped the game and closed a different embassy, which actually had value. I look at the the deterioration of the relationship, and I'm wondering especially in a post-COVID world where we are trying to retract from the globalism a little bit. What does a disrupted relationship with China look like to the average person in America? Like, where do, what happens from here? So, initially, the, the difference is going to be felt with sticker shock. Uh, there is going to be a price tag associated with this friction. Companies are not going to be able to turn over their supply chains overnight. Um, these are, we're talking trillions of dollars that is being, you know, products manufactured in China, they go in ships, ships come to America, you know, that's sort of been, and then the money goes back to China. And that's sort of been the paradigm for a very long time. Um, and at the same token, infrastructure isn't just going to magically come back in the United States. Um, not to quote Barack Obama, but there is, it, it's not going to happen overnight. Um, we need to start actually rebuilding the, the physical infrastructure of manufacturing in order to start bringing that, those back, building those plants, building those factories. However, you're, are, you're also going to find people then who are looking for alternatives, alternative solutions to supply chains. Um, but I think there's a great idea now that we can't have all of our eggs in one basket because what happens if that's an authoritarian regime like China that is in control of so much? And so what they're going to realize is, is that there are other places in Asia like India, like Vietnam, where they can start moving and, and resourcing their supply chains to um, in order to do that. But this process is going to take time. It's going to be expensive. Those expenses are going to be passed on to the consumer. But you know what? I'm okay with that. I'm okay with paying, you know, what, what are they always, there's always this, um, this argument from the free market fundamentalists that, wow, we have cheap, cheap Chinese TVs, cheap Chinese TVs. You look at the price of TVs. They constantly go back to the TV argument. And I say, look, I'm okay with paying a little, a few more dollars for a TV if it means that that money is, is number one, not going to China, and number two, hopefully, is going to something that's going to help another American out better, that's money that's going to an American worker to put food on an American table because that's part of, you know, being a good citizen in your country. It's not just about being able to have some big screen TV, it's actually being a little bit more cognizant of the choices of our economic decisions. I mean, there's there's also kind of a, I think there's been a policy strategy that maybe if we engage with China, they'll stop being authoritarian. I know a lot of regular Chinese don't necessarily like Xi. In fact, a lot of regular Chinese have looked at Xi in the past 10 years. They're afraid to say this, and they certainly won't say it on WeChat or anywhere that's, you know, controlled by the Chinese government. But 
they think he's going backwards. It's China's, China was becoming freer, and now there's a lot of Chinese going, well, he's kind of moving us backward. How, how would you recommend the U.S. Uh, and should the U.S. even worry about spreading, we'll say, individualism and freedom around the globe? Yeah, so Xi Jinping has a couple of issues that are not working in his favor. Uh, he's been the first Chinese leader, really since Deng Xiaoping, to institute his own cult of personality. Um, prior to his appointment as the chairman of the party, uh, you had this sort of, you know, Hu Jintao was a technocrat. Jiang Zemin was essentially a technocrat. They preferred to sort of see, be behind the scenes, in a sense, and stand as a figure of, of the party, a figure of the country, but they weren't making these huge pronouncements. They weren't aligning the military to their side the way Xi Jinping has. And so because Xi Jinping really instituted this cult of personality, remember just immediately prior to the pandemic, Xi Jinping had declared himself sort of chairman for life. And he was essentially bought himself into, he priced himself into uh, get the responsibility for everything that's going on now. And so there are people within China who understand that the loss of Chinese face, the face of the People's Republic around the world, that soft power influence that they had been working on for quite some time, certainly in the West, has been because of Xi Jinping and because of his efforts. Now, they're replacing that, of course, with hard power diplomacy. So this is what you're seeing in terms of debt traps that they're setting for third world nations with the expansion of Huawei in Europe, which is now being stymied, and, uh, and with their military expansion in the South China Sea, as well as their crackdown on Hong Kong. So essentially what's going on is that Xi Jinping understands that his position now is actually quite precarious. And so his response to that has been to rush to hyper-nationalism and say, we are going to take Hong Kong 25 years early. We are going to rattle the sabers against Taiwan and anyone who would interfere in our, uh, they always call it internal issues, our internal right. issues. And the same with, uh, with Xinjiang and everything they're doing with the Uyghurs, the concentration camps, re-education, and essentially just owning it and saying, These are, this is our issue, these are our people, we will do with them as we, see, as we see fit. And in doing so, he's trying to inflame those hyper-nationalistic tensions. But at the same time, there are also people, as you mentioned, who are yearning for more individual freedom, who liked the path that China was on. And so Xi Jinping has a real, it's, it's the... Um, it's the frog in the pot problem. So he's got right. he's got a problem of the the temperature got turned up way too high, and now the frog is jumping out of the pot. And it is potentially unsustainable for Xi Jinping. He does have rivals in the party. He does have rivals in the country. And and I've said this uh, a few times, but maybe not so publicly that. The way to deal with China is economically, but then also to go after Xi Jinping directly, call him out directly as being the one who caused this, and then destabilize his position directly with the party. That, coupled with the outside economic influence, is going to push China in a direction of either as you say, more liberalization, or you're going to see the deterioration of their, their grip on power. Can I mean, you, can I, sorry, go ahead. Can I can you explain just for anyone who's not aware 
just briefly, who are the Uyghur people and what's happening to them in China? Because as someone on the left, I didn't hear about this until uh, my boyfriend started listening to the War Room podcast with you and Steve oh, Bannon. Wow. And so, and he's a progressive and he finds the most information about China. So first, could you tell people just a little bit about the Uyghur, what's happening to them in China? And then second, where would you suggest that people who want to learn more about what's going on in China, what, what other sources should they listen to? Yeah, so, um, you know, obviously War Room pandemic is great. One American News, if I've I've got to, got to fly the flag, of course, and uh, and we do actually have Uyghurs on on a regular basis. We talk to some of their government in exile, um, and we've interviewed them multiple times to talk about the situation. So the Uyghur people, and I can tell you a story actually. So when I lived in China, so 2007-2008, and I had rented an apartment in Shanghai in uh, the Putuo district, and. What was really interesting to me was that as I was, you know, as I'd be walking on my way to work every morning, uh, grab the bus, I'd noticed that there was an Islamic mosque right down the street from my apartment one day. I said, that's interesting. I didn't expect to see that in, in China, right? Um, Especially and then, not like a big city China. Right, right, yeah, right, yeah made the, the, the biggest city. And, and then found that there were people around who, they, and I realized, you know, these these folks don't actually look ethnically Chinese, you know, what, you know, and then started asking about to myself. And so as you do more research, you realize that there's this vast Northwest, so you know, Tibet, right? You know, Tibet is, you know, the Tibetan people and that's Lhasa, the Dalai Lama, et cetera, et cetera. Well, there's an entire province just North of Tibet in the Northwest sector of China called Xinjiang and Xinjiang in, um, in Chinese actually means new border, right? Okay. So it literally means the new border uh, because Prior to um, China taking it over, it was known as East Turkestan. And this was part of the ancient Silk Road. Uh, so the Silk Road between sort of Europe and Imperial China. Uh, these were the, the people of the Silk Road and the steppes of Asia. So um, they're ethnically uh, Turkish, they're Turkic people that China later conquered and took over as they were seeking to control the Silk Road. Now, many of those Uyghurs have, have since come out to some of the major cities of China, like in Shanghai, where I would see them. But the vast majority still live in Xinjiang. Now, because they have a separate ethnic identity, a separate religious identity, and a separate cultural identity to communism, to Han, separate from Han Chinese uh, majority, what China has been doing is going in there, and there were at some points, uh, they've, they've been trying to deny them access to any positions of leadership in the country, deny them access to any positions of power in terms of, of companies, in terms of, of the economic liberalization, you know, massive inequality that goes on, keep them in poverty, but even putting Han Chinese and, and sort of transplanting them, this has been going on for wow. years, into that area to sort of make them the minority in their own homeland. And so that led to uh, actually acts of terrorism in some extreme cases from breakaway groups that were that were fighting it back against this. And now I personally don't condone terrorism. I'm explaining the situation, right? Now Xinjiang is extremely important. And you say, well why does it matter, right? This is a big mountainous region out in the middle of Asia. Who cares? Why did why did the Han Chinese care about it so much? Are they just power hungry? No, 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 no. Xinjiang, where it lies, is strategically crucial to China's plans for one belt, one road. Why is this? Because Xinjiang is right on the border 
between China and Afghanistan, Pakistan, and India. And China's current plan is to build that One Belt, One Road infrastructure all the way through Pakistan to gain a foothold in a, a wet water port at Chennai in, uh, in the Arabian Sea. And so what they're doing is they want to make sure that they can stabilize their, for the oil that they need because China doesn't have the resources. They want Gulf oil, Iranian oil coming up through pipelines, getting that back out to East Asia. They want the economic uh, trade that, they can, that can then go overland. They're, they're basically rebuilding parts of the Silk Road that they can go directly to Central Asia, to the Middle East, um, and then eventually through onto Europe. And Xinjiang is crucial to this. So what they're doing in order to break the back of the Uyghur people is they've taken these instances of terrorism and used it as a sort of justification for mass concentration camps, massive re-education programs, uh, teaching them you are not Uyghur, you are Chinese, you, you must learn the Mandarin language, you must, uh, you know, any, you know, your religion is, is false and you must you know, listen to Chairman Mao and you must learn the history of the Chinese Communist Party because you are Chinese, you are not anything else. And uh, even to the point, actually, believe it or not, where uh, so China refuses to um, uh, recognize time zones. And so uh, they require that the entire country, even though China is almost the same geographic size as the United States, to be on the Beijing time. So even in the far northwest of the country, they require, which would essentially be about three, four hours behind, they're requiring them to be on Beijing time. <laughs> so you, you will actually see Uyghurs wearing two watches sometimes. And one of them is set to sort of like the government official time. And then one is set to like local Uyghur time. And so it's, it's become this, this sort of act of rebelliousness to, you know, even, even tell time. It's absurd. On your own. And it seems absurd, right? It seems absurd, but it's an it, but it's still it's an exercise in submission. Yeah. It's an exercise in who has power. It's an exercise, you know, if we control your time yeah. and if you submit to our use of time, then you know, even then you will submit to everything else. And it's it's very Orwellian, it's very nineteen eighty four. I've been there, I've traveled to uh, the main city of Urumqi there and even back in two thousand ten when I was there on a on a visit. Uh, they had just gone through a round of, of major protests in the city. And so you saw uh, they shut down the Internet for the entire area. They shut down cell phone service to be able to, to break the protests. And they sent around essentially goon squads of Chinese soldiers. And they sort of called them these internal policemen and that were just marching throughout the city square in different groups holding, uh, you know, you'd see about four or five of them, and then one person would be holding an AK-47, and the rest would be holding just essentially what looks like a baseball bat or a club, just these cudgels that if they saw people protesting, if they saw people um, doing activism, that they would just go in and break it up using any means necessary. Wow. Would you characterize China as communist or just more sort of a authoritarian uh, tax farm? Because it doesn't really appear as... I think a lot of people don't realize that there's different races in China and they don't realize the kind of forced homogeneity that you're you're, yeah. you're talking about with the Uyghurs. And I think a lot of people also assume that it's kind of old school Soviet communism. And I, I don't know, I for one really kind of view it as more, it's authoritarian, absolutely. But I don't even know if their, alleg their allegiance doesn't really seem to lie towards that old Soviet style communism. It really seems to just be, we're a class that wants power and 
that's kind yeah, of I the mean, end. I, I've used the phrase mafia capitalism at some oh, time. Yeah. Uh, because you, you have, you do have hyper capitalism in some aspects of, of China's system, but at the same time, that's more from a competitive standpoint. The mafia, which is the party, the CCP, I mean, they control everything down to the valuation of their own currency, down to their own liquidity and, uh, and their central bank. So they can inject as much, you know, as much free money into their system as they want. And this has caused a lot of massive overvaluation in and inflation in these Chinese companies. Um, and you're also seeing because they have a huge what's what's going on literally right now in the wake of the pandemic is the first which and by the way, is fine as long as your economy is expanding at breakneck speed, you can do that. Um, without any serious ramifications or repercussions. The problem is, what happens if you have an economic slowdown? What happens if you don't have 8% uh, GDP increase quarter after quarter? And now you're seeing, in the wake of the pandemic, 3% returns. You're seeing, uh, right. which you know, is still great, but not for China. Which is great, yeah. but it's not for great because of the way it's not great because of the way that they've been overspending. I mean, right. you have a situation where. Uh, they call them ghost cities in parts of China, yes. where yes. Uh, where they're building towers upon towers of these massive high rises all over the place in every city, not just Shanghai and the tier one cities, but tier two cities, tier three cities, where they build something and then they move on to the next one and they move on to the next one. And it's essentially, it's, it's a jobs program um, that's that's funded by, by nothing. It's funded by debt to themselves and it's funded with funny money. And so that is going to get broken. And here's the issue too, that also the CCP has on their hands. And this is why I go back to talking about the economics is if you don't have the United States financing this and underwriting so much of what's going on, their own expansion, a 1%, 2% uptick in unemployment in China, you know, in the United States, it's bad. In China, you're talking about 100 million people very quickly as right. the percentages go up. And when the CCP, the mafia, has to deal with the Lao Baixing, this is the old hundred names of China in, the, in terms of the hundreds of millions, this gets into what actually what, what they call the, the theory of dynastic decline and dynastic cycles in China. Every Chinese dynasty has followed the same cyclical uh, history of, of rise, growth, power, decay, corruption, falling, and then the new dynasty takes wow. its place and the cycle re, re, reasserts itself. And this goes back thousands of years. And so through that lens, and by the way, the, Ch the Chinese Communist Party knows this quite well. Sure. Uh, and so when they look at this view, one of the, the ideas, one of the concepts of the ruling dynasty is that they have the mandate of heaven. And so if the mandate of heaven is given to them, that's, that's because they have power, they have popular appeal, they have the ability to govern. But one of the signs that your dynasty has lost the mandate of heaven is economic downturn, natural disasters, and plagues. Wow. <laughs> and She's so in trouble. for them to admit, and this is what I, I, okay. I've, I've said um, when I was on War Room and helped launch the War Room pandemic, I was the first guest, um, is that for them to admit that they have a national plague plays into their understanding of the theory of dynastic decline and that and this is why very early on xi jinping said this virus is the devil and it is coming from satan 
And so, you know, you, you think, wait a minute, aren't these the, the atheists? Why are they talking right. in terms of, you know, heaven and hell and atheists? Because he understands the mandate of heaven and he understands the power that this has um, in terms of popular opinion in China. And so to say this was sent by the devil is a way of casting himself as on the side of the gods and the virus itself on the side of, of evil, the side of, of, of hell, and and trying to say that we've, we're fighting it because you know we're on the side, not the angels, but to use the Western phrase, right. uh, we're on the side of the angels because he understands the situation he's in and the ramifications of what he's saying. That comports with why, that, I mean, it makes sense with, uh, when you look at how they're treating the Chinese people in response to this. I've seen, uh, I get videos and, and texts from someone who was like, for example, whisked away into a tiny little uh, yeah. concrete room for a month because her mom was on a bus with someone who had COVID after her mom tested positive. But they're just, they're like really draconian about stopping the spread of coronavirus. And I guess it makes sense if it's not just a few people die, but it's also some sort of symbolic meaning that oh, our dynasty's in decline if this gets out. We really, really, we need to right. you have it to, down. You have to show the power of the regime, and it's all about the legitimacy of the regime. The Chinese Communist Party has studied the fall of the Soviet Union obsessively. They're obsessed, and they understand the role that Chernobyl and the fallout of Chernobyl, not just the physical uh, radioactive fallout, but also the political, the fallout. political yeah. fallout, the fact that you know, Chernobyl happens and then just a few years later, the Soviet Union falls. They understood that that led to a loss of legitimacy for the regime. And that's why the draconian methods for them are necessary because the regime has to show that they are taking it seriously, that they're so much in control and that they will do anything to, you know, fight back against this virus from hell. Right. So if the U.S. is going to, like, you've mentioned economics a couple of times, and I kind of want to talk about some of this. If the, if the U.S. is going to reach out to Chinese, like, I particularly look at, like, the Guangdong province and, like, or, you know, Xinjiang in particular, there's a lot of kind of, I'll say, frankly, a spirit of Americanism that per permeates kind of regular, regular people. Do you think that, are you saying that the U.S. should be kind of reaching out to the, the, the Chinese people that have an affinity towards the U.S., that have been sending their their, their kids here and kind of want some of that back home as a way to help undermine Xi and the CCP? Well, no, I, I think that it, it becomes very dangerous if, if it looks like the opposition is U.S.-led, right? Because mm. then that gives Xi the propaganda talking point of saying these are all just foreign actors or they've fallen under the sway of the American flag. And that's why even though my heart goes out to the people of Hong Kong, it, when they started flying American flags, yes, that sent one signal to the United States, but it sent a very different signal to, main, to, to main, China. Uh, mainland China. Oh, and it could be used against that them. That could be used against them. So you have to be very careful about the symbology of these situations. And so what I would encourage, though, is is the the older national identity of China their their long history their idea that China as a nation or various uh, forms of nations has existed 
for long before the Communist Party. Uh, traditional Chinese ideals, Chinese culture, Chinese beliefs have predated the Communist Party. The Communist Party fought against tradition. Right, yeah. The Communist yeah. Party smashed tradition. They destroyed Buddhist temples and statues throughout the Cultural Revolution. They've declared war on history. I mean, that's you see the parallels in the United States today. Yes, of course. And, and, and so appealing to that, which is definitely more speaks to a baser level in China and asking why are we still going along with this dynasty when you've led us, yes, we have some, we have certainly better economic situation, but yet at the same time, there is so much devastation going on. And you guys are talking about, you know, building a road to Pakistan when we can't, when there's so many people right here in Wuhan dying. Right. Is where, where are the interests of the regime at that point? Where, why are you so focused on expanding your power rather than helping the people locally? And turn, maybe you shouldn't have turned away from our ancient traditions. Those are the types of questions that the regime does not want you yeah. to start asking. I have, right? a, I have a final question for you because I don't want to keep you too long, but I want to come back to... You mentioned what's happening with the Uyghurs. Can you talk a little bit about what's happening to Christians in China? And then also, how do we get people in the United States to be interested in these issues when it's not covered by our media? Um, and how do we present, and maybe you won't have a great answer for this, but how do we make the liberal, the compassion case for caring about what's happening to different ethnic communities or different religious communities? Yeah, sure. Well, if you're someone who's interested in, in racial equality or if you're someone who's interested in religious liberty, I mean, you're, you're not going to find a more genocidal regime on the planet today than the one in China. Uh, what they're doing to the Uyghurs is ethnic cleansing. It's, it's by every definition. Uh, what they're doing to the religious community is persecution by every definition. So there's five uh, official organized religions uh, through China that are allowed to, where you're allowed to worship. However, they all have to sort of fall under the sway of Beijing and fall under the sway of the party. So if you don't- Five official approved? Right. <laughs> So if you're not one of in one of the approved structures, um, and if what they've done is people have actually formed what they call them house Christians, and so they're they're worshiping now in in prayer circles, in Bible studies, in their own homes, and it'll move. It's like a, sort of a floating. It's secret. It has to be secretly, because if you want to actually study the Bible, if you want to actually have these discussions outside of sort of the approved organized religions in China, uh, it's it's forbidden. It's completely forbidden. In fact, when I went to go, I'm Catholic. When I went to go to Catholic mass in China, in some instances, I had to show my passport because wow. I had to prove that I wasn't a, in, a Chinese citizen. In order to worship at the Catholic church, in you had to, to prove to you were not church. Chinese. Right. Wow. On, on Easter Sunday. Wow. On Easter Sunday. And I, and I couldn't bring my friends with me because they weren't allowed to go in there. Right. This was a foreigner only service. I don't think people here especially a lot of people who are um, coming from the left like me, maybe haven't traveled a lot and don't really understand how, what a different yeah, we say place that all this the time. is. They've never yeah. gone anywhere. They've never yeah. gone anywhere. And so um, I think that, I've been, and I've actually seen people who are in the social justice left, if you try to talk about what's happening to the Chinese people, whether you're talking about the Uyghurs or Christians, um, they react uniformly, they recoil from it as some type of xenophobia and racism. And wow. I'm trying to get to this point of, of 
being able to better articulate the difference between criticizing the Chinese government and and attacking uh, someone's ethnicity, like for being Chinese or wow. Or, yeah, well, you know what? I, what I would ask to my 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 colleagues on the other side of the aisle is is when did you all forget about Tibet? Yes. Right, when did free you, Tibet was there yes. was bumper sticker Where's everywhere. Where's Free Tibet? Yes. When, when Brad Pitt made Seven Years in Tibet, incredible yep. film. I actually spoke to some of the people that worked on that film, talked about how they smuggled camera equipment into Tibet so they could actually get footage from inside wow. there. Um, a lot of it was filmed outside for obvious reasons. Right. But uh, did you guys just forget about all of this stuff? Did you forget about, you know, this? I remember Injustice, every, you know, anywhere... Um, is a threat to is justice, a threat to justice everywhere. And so why is it that you've you've sold this out? Remember, I remember when George Harrison was, I don't remember, but I've seen the videos, the, the concert for Bangladesh and everything mm-hmm. did, George Harrison, Bob Dylan. This was the, this was the left, right? Yes. <laughs> this was the left. And then Tibet became the next one. And so we're going to fight for Tibet. And so when you talk about Xinjiang, and this is like, hey, I'm a, I'm like, I'm a Catholic, I'm a conservative, and I'm a Trump supporter. And yet, wait a minute, I care about these Muslims in Central Asia? Like, wait, what? Yeah. You're not supposed to care about Muslims, right? But when you see what's happening there, you, you have to, as just as a human being, right, as just someone who has compassion to say, what's going on is wrong. And if we really do believe in, you know, never again, in terms of ethnic cleansing, then how can you not speak out against what they're doing? Um, and and I get it. I get that it's far away and I get that it's it doesn't affect us directly. But couldn't you have said that about so many other atrocities throughout human history? And, you know, when you have to dig so deep and twist words around to find things to complain about in the United States versus I can say, hey, million people in concentration camps. That's all I have to say. And the videos that are coming out, the, quite frankly, I think that the videos that have, that have been smuggled out now of Xinjiang that are starting to get play now in international media and through the power of social media, that's really what it takes to convert people because you can show it. Because I don't have to show the oppression. I don't have to, excuse me, I don't have to, you know, you don't have to read a book to understand this oppression. You can see it and you have a visceral reaction. You know what's going on. And this type of cleansing has always led, these types of forces in our world have always come from this 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 specter of sort of these failed 20th century 20th century ideologies of, of fascism of communism of totalitarianism that unfortunately we're still dealing with most of the world has walked away from them but in some places they do still exist yeah. and you know if the world turns a blind eye to what's happening in Xinjiang you know that's that's on the world and that's something they're going to have to live with but at the same time understanding and this is what i would say to to my america first friends as well who criticize me they said jack why do you care so much about the uyghurs why do you talk about right. them all the time that how does that help the people in the middle america how does that help people i'll tell you exactly how it helps because why are we doing business with the people that are perpetuating that injustice. Yes. Why are we doing business with them? Why don't we look at, at returning our manufacturing base? Why don't we stop outsourcing in China? Why don't we start returning that? I think it's an incredibly America first position because those are the ones who reap the benefits of the system of globalization over the past 20 years. And you know, somebody at the uh, Claremont Institute said uh, that you know when China was brought into the world system, was brought into the WTO, it was almost like if a village has a mafia problem, 
and then instead of stamping them out, you you know you 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 give them, the you give them a seat the on the town council, council <laughs> right, yeah. right? Yeah, yeah you've heard this one. You know, you bring them on the town council and say, oh, now that they have a seat at a table, they'll change their behavior. But meanwhile, the mafia is sitting there. Now we're in, boys. <laughs> right. And they violated almost every rule of the WTO and every other international organization they've followed, but then no one seems to care. Right, nobody seems to because of this. Because yeah. of this. Yeah. Because because there's so there's trillions of dollars at stake in terms of this. There's trillions of dollars at stake over the terms of, you know, just the the average Chinese worker and their conditions. There's trillions of dollars at stake over what's going, been done to the Uyghur people. There's trillions of dollars at stake, and and everyone wants to turn to blind blind up. Where's the Arab League on this? Where's Care? Where's right. Ilhan Omar? This is you know the people that, that normally would be standing up for this situation, and you, you know they they want to yell about Donald Trump and everything else, and he had oh he had a tweet they didn't like, or you know he uh, <laughs> something they think he's stealing their mail, you know, and but and they were, oh yes of course. And they, they'll, they'll scream about that and they'll chant about that and they'll, they'll protest against that. And yet when there's a regime that's, that's literally committing ethnic cleansing of Muslims and they're, 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 they're either they're silent. silent or they'll, you know, they'll throw, oh, this is, I condemn, I condemn. And that's just it. And that's all they right. ever say. Whereas well, that this betrays be, their actual motive, right? Yeah, that betrays their actual, but this should be, in my mind, this is something that the right and left could have in common that this could be a common concern. Yeah, and un unfortunately and it's real, right? Yeah. Unfortunately it's real. This isn't some, you know, new theory of woke uh, racial inequality. This isn't some... It's real oppression. Treatise. No, it's, it's oppression of real people. It's not a microaggression. Of a real it's culture. It's, it's actual genocide. Yeah. Yeah. Well, so One American News Network is where people can find you. And um, you also do, as we mentioned, the War Room Pandemic podcast with Steve Bannon sometimes. Where else can people find you? Uh, uh, Twitter is always, you know, that's sort of my home base. Um, so just at, at Jack Posobiec, J-C-K-P-O-S-O-B-I-E-C. Cool. Great. Thank you very Thanks much, Thanks for your time, Jack. Jack. Appreciate oh, thank it. Thank you, guys. Thanks for watching. If you're new to the channel, we have a deep content library that includes interviews with everyone from Mike Cernovich to Megan Murphy, so go check it out. If you'd like to see more, please consider supporting the show by visiting unsafespace.com donate. You can find us on all the major social media platforms, at least for now, and you can find a community of like-minded individuals on our Unsafe Space chat on Telegram. Our trip to the Better Discourse Conference in Milwaukee was made possible by the support of the following individuals, with a special thanks to Dr. Carlin Borisenko, who generously donated the Super Chat proceeds from her episode with Carrie. Warning, this is an unsafe space. Dangerous ideas have been detected. The content of this production has not been authorized by the Cathedral. Pay no attention to it. For your protection, the following co-conspirators have been unpersoned and marked for cancellation. Please avoid any contact with these individuals. According to the FBI, these are all Russian bots. If you think about it, no one should be allowed to express opinions. But don't. Think about it, I mean. That's not your job.
thinking has been scientifically proven to be less efficient than compliance. Marxism will definitely work this time. Computer voice Curtis, never mind, that last line is fake news. Please disregard it and return to your safe space immediately. There will be cake.